All right, well, welcome everybody. People are trying to hide behind the pillar, I see. Welcome to our uh, week seven, our last week on the series in the law. Kind of had uh, two sub-series up to now. The first three weeks, we looked at the attitude, good and bad attitudes towards God's law. The last three weeks, we tried to dive into different views about what God's law actually is today uh, for the New Testament Christian. And, and primarily for me, I'm interested in you having a good, consistent, biblical, interpretive grid for making that decision. I'm, I'm less interested on where you land than wrestling scripturally uh, how you get there. There's verses to go around. It's a complex subject. I didn't really make clear last week Sometimes we dive into the details, like, okay, should this law come over? You know, that would be kind of weird in our culture. But I think one thing we need to recognize is, and this is probably where I really started getting challenged, and it was during the social justice series, was our whole basis of Western laws are very much based on the Bible. You know, the things that we probably would argue are beneficial and better than the past, better than non-Western societies, Things, you know, like two or three witnesses, being able to face your accuser, equal weights and measures. Things that really we just take for granted would just be common knowledge. They're not always common in the world. And so some of this series is getting us to think about, well, would we argue for such principles um, by the Bible? Can we say with biblical authority, those are things that ought to be embedded into your society, into your law codes? Or is it just general wisdom? And we're going to pull out our statistics, we'll pull out history, and we'll try to make our argument, this is the way that, you know, a, a good society would be. And that's where some of the, the disagreements and, and the discussion go. How do we, you know, a lot of times we're talking about multiculturalism, how is it, is it right to appropriate things from other cultures, and where does culture weigh in here? Is it, are our cultures equal? Can we say there are more biblical cultures than others? How do we enter those kind of discussions? One thing I think we just need to be aware of is we all swim in our culture. There's no way around it. And as we look at this stuff today, we had our Protestant reformers swam in a different culture. And they actually they had quite different views on what we're going to talk about today. And it's always a challenge to, to figure out what is, has come to you through your culture through, versus what has come through the Bible. And, and at one point, maybe it's not that important to you, unless you're going to be a missionary and go into some other culture where you really have to wrestle with these things. You really have to start peeling back, okay, what is just my tradition or my culture? But at the same time, we're living in an increasingly godless culture, in a, in a biblically illiterate culture. And so again, as we're faced with it in Las Vegas. And, you know, what, do, what must we bring into these areas where we're trying to evangelize, maybe transform culture, depending on your view, uh, and what, what can we leave behind? So it's, it's always a question. At the same time, you do live in your culture. So at one point, you can kind of just, if it's not causing a problem, maybe you just accept the culture for what it is, and you preach the gospel in that culture the way people will relate and understand. You don't necessarily need to create a problem where there isn't one. And so I think that whole aspect of culture is, is going to matter in our talk today. Again, this series has been kind of, I've been kind of wrapping up theological loose ends that I felt like I left out in, in some of our practical series. For instance, when we talked about social justice, I simply stated that there are different theological views about the mission of the church in the world. 
Because what we want to talk about today is what is that, what is a biblical relationship between the church and the state, you could say? What is, what is the role of the church in a secular world? Obviously, if, if, if you think the church ought to be very involved in the political realm, in the cultural realm, then the type of things you think should happen in social justice, for instance, are going to matter. It's going to affect how you vote. You know, are you looking for a party that has, quote, Christian principles that you want to implement? Or does that not factor into your thinking at all? It's very much a general wisdom, practical type of questions. Back in that study, we talked about a lot of the practical things. So if you do think it's legitimate or even mandatory for the church to be out in the culture, you still have, you have lots of practical questions. How many, what is the priority of the time and the resources of your church to do that, of the elders particularly? Uh, what, what training do you assume that your elders have? If, if Tim has gone to a seminary, so we know he's got theological training, do we assume he can now exegete the culture or he has, he has some great giftedness in how to feed the poor? Is that something you should expect of your seminaries? That's the type of implications you have, depending on what you expect the role, the mission, the priority of the church to be. We looked at uh, local, regional churches. We looked at parachurch. We looked at denominations. So I, I don't want to deal with any of the practical side. Those are massively important. Today, it's really the, the theological. Do we have the right to tell the culture how to live? Is it our place? Do we have the duty to do so? We ought to, if, if we're not involved, we're not very involved in the city, in my personal opinion. I don't think we're, I think we have a disconnect what our church vision says. It's my own personal opinion. And I know there's a work towards getting there. That's one reason we're in a building, is we want, want to get there. And that's one reason I, why I want to talk about things. I don't want to lose that vision. I'm going to keep bringing it up. I'm going to be a squeaky wheel on this subject. Um, and then also we can look at the other way. What... What right or role does the church have, the state have in the church? And how much of a defensive stance do we take? That kind of came up when we talked about COVID responses. So anyway, that, that's where all this is coming to. And today, just as a platform, I'm going to walk us through some aspects of chapter 23 of our confession of civil authorities or civil magistrates. And particularly, I want to look at some of the changes that have happened over time. Just to introduce... Christians throughout history have wrestled with these things. Again, it's another complex area that Christians disagree on. And again, I just want to encourage you, that this is a field of study that's worth some time and effort. And, and to give you a little bit of a background, a little bit of framework to study, study for yourself. We're just going to do the one, one Sunday on this, introduce it. Uh, and if you're interested in more, then obviously uh, you can go in that way. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for redeeming us, for saving us. And now help us, Father, know how then shall we live. Help us to know where the priority is of uh, the Great Commission, of preaching the gospel, of evangelizing, of discipling. And help us to know if there are any other priorities, cultural mandate, um, working for um, renewal in society, Help us to love our neighbor, and that's really what we want to understand. What does it mean to love our neighbor, and, and what is the role, not just as an individual, but as, a, as an organized church? Help us to wrestle with your word. Help us not to settle for our traditions or our culture. Be willing to be challenged um, by all that you taught us in the Old and the New Testaments. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read. Um, there's four paragraphs in that chapter. The first and fourth paragraph, I'm just going to summarize is things we've talked a lot about. I don't think they're very controversial in this subject. Basically, it talks about that the New Testament church is not a political entity like Israel. We have civil authorities. We have authorities that aren't necessarily Christian. And that we, primarily the, the main text here is Romans 13, we are to submit to those governing authorities. That's our baseline rule. We submit to governing authorities, and it doesn't matter if they're Christians or not. Those civil authorities, regardless of their faith, are actually appointed by God to promote good and punish evil, essentially. In fact, the word the servant or the minister is actually the word deacon. And so theonomists that we talked about last week, that is those who want to bring over more civil laws from Moses and implement, say, in America today, they would make much of that. That, see, the government is God's deacon. We're all in this together, we're, right? We're supposed to carry out the will of God. Submitting to governing authorities is submitting to God. It's much like children, you submit to your parents uh, as to the Lord. Women's uh, wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. It's the, there's delegated authorities. And so it doesn't make sense by and large. We know there are sections, but by and large, it doesn't make sense to be some civil rebel or anarchist that doesn't align with God's mind and why he put government. Government is a gift to us. We pay our taxes. We pray for our government officials. We ought to pray for every level of government officials and mean it <laughs> and really pray for God's wisdom and for them to establish righteousness. Somehow, this is the hardest thing in this subject in my mind, somehow these civil authorities have to have some knowledge of good and evil. Right? If there's to establish good and fight against evil, how do they have that? And then, so that's why the theonomist starts to argue, they don't have it. If, you, if you're going to take away the Old Testament from the world and just say, no, that's, you know, that was to Israel or that's just to the church, somehow we have some knowledge of good and evil. And we talked about moral law and natural law and those things. And I think the even harder thing is to recognize the scripture seems to hold government authorities accountable. Not only now, but in eternity. It'll be more, it'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you, Jesus said. How are cities, how are Sodom and Gomorrah as cities somehow facing the judgment in the, in the eternal state? I don't understand that. I don't know exactly what that means. But clearly there's some kind of knowledge and account, accountability even for governments and cities as a whole, not just individuals. All right, so paragraph two of this chapter, this is more gets into the differences. It says, it is lawful for Christians to hold public office when called to it. In such office, they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. For that purpose, they may now, under the New Testament, lawfully wage war upon just and necessary occasion. And so you kind of have a lot of traditions. Exactly, I as an individual Christian, what is my relationship to the state? So you have people on the far side who basically want a Christian nation. They want to work for, we'll call it Christendom. We ought to be working to establish, no kidding, a Christian identity at a national level, at a city level, or some other organizational level. And then you kind of have the other far side, um, more of a separatist. Christians who say, wait a minute, you can't. You know, we, we're told to turn the other cheek. 
For a Christian to be involved in warfare is completely antithetical to the gospel. And so they're more, they make themselves at peace. So these guys kind of want to merge church and state. And these guys say, no, they're separate and they should never mix. I state, I will not try to influence you. I'm not going to join you. I'm not going to join the military. I'm not going to be a governing official. I, I am, I'm a pilgrim in this land. You know, you're going to hell and I'll preach the gospel to you. Hope that you're converted and come to my side. At the same time, don't you dare come in and touch what I'm doing as a church. And you can kind of see the remnants of that in, you know, things like Mennonites and the Amish and very separatist. And then you have views in between that are more, you know, more of a mix or more of some kind of a cooperation. So um, maybe, maybe you're a Christian who wants to get involved. You don't, you don't believe in Christendom per se. You don't want the church to have the power of the sword but you're gonna be highly involved in politics. And maybe it's important to you that the political leader you vote for is a Christian. You believe that the more Christians we can give in government, that would be better for America, by and large. Where other people would say, no, I, I wanna see their positions. I, I wanna know how effective they are at their jobs. I don't really care that much about their faith. This, this was a lot about the, the evangelical support for Trump. That was a lot of the discussions, was how much of this, how much do we care that Trump his personal morality, or how much do we care just how he governs? A lot of those discussions. Um, or maybe just look at some level of righteousness in your organization. It's not about faith. It's not a religious thing, but still you want to see what, what righteousness or justice comes out of that party or that person. And then other people would be, well, you're just free. It's, you're completely free to do what you want. You, the, the organization, you, um, you know, you're not going to be held accountable for the organization. Uh, you just need to be an individual Christian maintaining your personal piety. As long as you don't compromise individually, you can join whatever you want. And I guess it's kind of like in warfare, you can either storm the beaches, occupy a nation, and take over. Right? That would be Christendom. Or you're going you're, you're gonna to be the special forces that are infiltrated in, and you're going to try to affect the organization from within. But you don't carry an identity back and forth as an individual in the organization. So there's all sorts of views. The confession is telling us that we have the freedom. It doesn't seem to use words like um, you ought to, you have a duty to. It's just you're free. You're a Christian. You're free to be involved in government. Uh, just maintain your personal piety. Um, a couple verses. Luke 3. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to John, Teacher, what shall we do? John said to them, collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what, what we, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now this was a great time. People who were coming to John as a baptism of repentance, wanted a full change of life, ready to do what God tells them to do. And you have Jews and Gentiles coming to him. And John doesn't appear, it seems like, a perfect chance for him to say, get away from the state, right? Get out of these organizations into our little Christian subculture. And he doesn't seem to do that. He says, you know, there's personal standards you need to maintain. Don't abuse your authority. But he doesn't say to leave them. You know, the, the tax collectors, they were hated, right? They were like, um, they were really enemies to the people. And then you have these Roman soldiers. He, Seems like if he was a pacifist, 
he'd say, get out, you know, you're not to serve the state. You're not, you don't have any right to the sword. But he says, you know, be content with your wages. So that seems to be some proof to the confessional standard. Philippians 4, I love this. Don't, don't ever read too quickly over the little biographical narratives in the letters. I love it. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So here Paul was being persecuted. He's in prison for the gospel, for preaching the gospel. And here he is converting people just silently. He, he, he's, he's behind enemy lines. And I just wonder, I have no idea, but I just wonder if generations of servants in Caesar's household somehow had an effect, you know, and came to fruition a few hundred years later. But that's, that's amazing. People are being converted. <laughs> I mean, God is great. He, he overrides everything. So they, were, they served in this godless household, right? It doesn't seem to be any condemnation of them being there. All right, so now paragraph three is the big one. Um, I'm going to read it, but I'm going to read it really fast, and then I'll summarize it. Civil authorities may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, nor should they interfere in any way in matters of faith. So the state should not interfere with the church in broad terms. Yet, as caring fathers, it is the duty of civil authorities to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, doing so in such a way that all church authorities shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of carrying out every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. So not only is the state not to intrude, the confession says the state actually has a, a proactive, active responsibility to protect the church, to protect its freedom. That's what a lot of people were arguing, have been arguing about in the whole COVID realm. Does the government have any right whatsoever to tell the church how to worship? Some would say, well, you know, general building codes, safety, as long as it's equal in society, that's okay because they're not picking us out. Others would say, no, you have absolutely no sovereignty in this sphere. As Jesus Christ has appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, prevent, or hinder the proper exercise among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians, according to their own profession and belief. It is the duty of civil authorities to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effective manner that no person be allowed, either in the name of religion or of unbelief, to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person, whatever. They should also take care that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without interference or disturbance. So quite a, a distinction in the, in the spheres of authority between the church and the state, I'll call them. The state may not interfere. They're actually called caring fathers. Again, that goes back to that Romans 13, the idea that they are deacons of God. And obviously our civil authorities don't care what the Westminster Confession says these days, but Basically, we're saying that they ought to, right? They are actually have responsibility to the God that they don't believe in. And then I assume by way of implication, if you are now involved in government or maybe your role is voting, you ought to be promoting people who have this view. That would be a logical implication. It's interesting that it talks about the state not showing preferences to Christian denominations. Usually when I listen to people on podcasts and such, they would obviously want to protect all faiths, 
Um, the Confessions particularly talks about Christians. Um, and there's a whole argument about, you know, what freedom, what religion meant in our founding documents as a country, if that meant all faiths or if it meant particularly Christian faiths. It does seem to have well, at least one limitation here. The state will protect everyone from indignity, violence, abuse, or injury, even if that's done in the name of religion. So it's not like they're protecting all religion full stop. You know, any religion that would impose some kind of violence in another, then they're going to protect them against that. So it doesn't seem to be a full separation of church and state. It's more focused on what the state should not do to the church and how they ought to protect the church. It doesn't really talk about the church's role in, in society. So that still remains to be seen. Now, the confession has gone uh, quite a, in this chapter, there's a huge change. This, this chapter is basically rewritten um, in, I think it's the 1900s or 1800s, actually maybe even the late 1700s. They kind of call it the American um, revision. This is what it used to say. And you can kind of understand when you think about when the Reformation took place, we had Catholic countries and Protestant countries, right? We had Protestant armies. Um, it's a very different world than we think it, uh, today. This is what it used to say. The civil magistrates, the civil authorities, may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments, the power of the keys of kingdom, yet has authority, it is his duty to take care that the unity and peace be preserved in the church. So that's very similar. Now, then it says, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. To better effect his duties, he has power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide whatever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. And there's a few other changes in chapters 20, 20 and 31. So here's a big difference. Now, the state is involved in figuring out heresies, in calling councils, um, unless they are open enemies to the church. So the, it's the state. We have the King James Bible. We have lots of history of these synods being called by civil authorities. So there was a much more of a link with the church and the state, even among our Protestant forefathers. Um, and so we, we kind of look at that and say, well, that seems weird. How did they get it so wrong? And so, I, again, I want to challenge you. Were they wrong? Like, here, we, we rely on these documents, right? We rely on these, these godly men who came together. We think they were gifted by God. It was a special time that, that theology was figured out. And yet, are we going to say they got this one so wrong? And if so, how much do we trust all the other things they said? Or is it just, you know, your people of your day, right? They're swimming in their culture. That, that was the way it was. It wasn't really challenged. I don't know. Ultimately, I just want to drive you to the Bible, right? <laughs> Ultimately, that's our, our trust. It's not your culture, not your confession. Take all these things, wrestle with them, and turn to the Bible. Does it speak to this? Or does this kind of just, the Bible doesn't speak to this, and we kind of make up our own minds. Those are the things to wrestle with. Okay, so before I open for questions, um, I don't know if I have the exact history and people right here. That's not so important. I more want to, you know, different Christians have all these different views. 
And so, but this is how I understand it, not, not an area of my expertise. So you obviously had the Catholic Church that was, you know, the Pope is a political figure. There were crusades, there were forced conversions. It was very much church and state, the same thing. And so the Protestants um, reacted to that. So you have Luther, and he has what's called the two-kingdom theology. Uh, two-kingdom theology. And Calvin, um, Calvin has a two-kingdom theology, but it's a little different. Now, Luther kind of went back to Augustine, city of man, city of God. This, you kind of have a spiritual realm and an, an earthly realm. And he calls it the left hand and the right hand. And so, left hand and right hand. And basically, this is, left hand is, is, is your earthly, temporal um, law. Everything about Luther is law and gospel, right? Earthly, this is your spiritual. Your right-hand realm is your, your redemptive realm, right? We want to preach the gospel. It's all about salvation. Here, the left hand is your earthly realm. It deals with law. Now, what Luther meant by this was not church and state. That's kind of what Calvin formed this to be. So for, for Calvin, this right-hand spiritual realm would include even the administration of the church, the offices of the church. For Luther, that was in the left-hand realm. So a little more mixing of the two spheres. It's not that important. It's just that if you're, if they would say, anywhere you're talking about the law or external righteousness, that belongs to the left hand. The biggest thing in the Protestant's mind was Christians belong to both of these realms or to all, you go to more than two. A Christian is always simultaneously in both spheres. They're always operating in two. So they don't want to be a separatist. They didn't want to be like the Anabaptists who were that real separatist or what they called the radical reformers. They just, they thought this world was evil and they wanted to get away from it. For Luther and for Calvin, we, we kind of always live in both of these worlds. And, but that's where kind of the tension and the confusion comes in. How much do you do in each? And particularly, where is the organization uh, of the church in each? And so for Calvin, it's very similar. But now this would, for Calvin, this would be, uh, this would be the state and the church. Um, so the state, Calvin was big on the state has no right to say excommunicate someone from the church. Where in Luther's kind of world, they, they had some administrative responsibilities over the church. Um, the left-hand realm bears the sword, the church bears no sword. Outward righteousness and inner righteousness, true righteousness, forensic righteousness. For Luther, the church didn't get involved in political activism too much. Lutherans are big on focusing on the gospel, right? They don't, they, they're really worried about mixing law and gospel. And so they're big on works of charity and such, but not political activism. Where Calvin got a little more into political activism and getting Christians into the state. James Madison was highly influenced by Luther as, as the words of our declaration and our constitution. Um, and so you, you kind of can see, if, if you know, know about American politics and history, you, you start to really see where the influences come from. Uh, 
I, I think it gets into complications that aren't that important, the, the specific differences. And then maybe against all of this would be um, somebody like Kuiper. Now Kuiper, he was more what you might call a one kingdom theology or really what's called transformationalism. I know my handwriting is horrible. So Kuiper um, was big on, it is actually part of the mission of the church, not just to preach the gospel, but to transform society. That's part of our mission. It's part of the work of the church. It's a responsibility and duty. His famous quote is that every square inch of this world belongs to Christ. He believed in a Christendom. Christian societies, Christian schools, Christian hospitals, trying to create a Christian city, right? And building that up and, and affecting things in the world. De Young says of Kuiper, therefore his lordship should be felt and manifested in politics, in the arts, in education, in short, everywhere, because the work of Christ was not just to save sinners, but also to renew the whole cosmos. John Stott came to this position. He said that responsibility for social action is not simply a consequence of people being converted through evangelism, but is a part of the mission itself. And I think that's the key difference. None of us disagree that an individual Christian who's transformed by the gospel will go out and love their neighbor and do good works. Everyone is on the same board with that, that you ought to go and, and work for transformational, but as an individual Christian, by the freedom and, and the direction of the Holy Spirit, what is my role in this world? to display the love of Christ, and to use it as a platform for evangelism. The question is, what is the church's organized role? And now you have more from Westminster, West primarily. Van Drunen is the main guy, but you have Klein and Michael Horton. Um, very much what, they, what is called, I think it's maybe called by their opponents, but the radical to kingdom view. So kind of a, and this is getting a lot of press right now, radical two kingdom, meaning it's just, they want to separate it from Luther's two kingdom or maybe even Calvin's two kingdom. So if you listen to Whitehorse Inn or read Michael Horton, you, you definitely get this sense from him. And some people say it's kind of a mix of the traditional reformed and Lutheran positions. But basically, they, they, again, they are very careful about wanting to mix evangelism and discipleship and the sacraments and, and the administration of the church, that's, that's where we ought to focus as an individual local regional church, denominations even. Everything else, all the good works, all the things you could be doing for society, you shouldn't, don't, at least don't get involved so much that you take away from your priority. That would be their emphasis. Um, so they would be, even works of charity would not, in their mind, be in the role of the church that's more in the world, individual Christians working in the world. Um, some of them would even say that, we, we talked about the cultural mandate the last couple of weeks, where before Moses, so we don't care about the continuity of Moses so much, is when, when God talks to Adam, is Adam a representative that we ought to be carrying on? Talks about tending the garden, right? Organizing, that's culture. Um, ruling the earth, having children getting married, um, the other order, I guess. The, some, some of the radical two kingdoms have to say no. That cultural mandate had to do with the covenant of works. And after the fall, Jesus took care of the cultural mandate. That's no longer our problem. They would maybe turn to the more Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, 
and say, well, that was a covenant of preservation, not salvation. And so God is preserving this earth for the good of his church. And it's kind of, it's, it's a lot more two different worlds, right? And, and we just kind of accepted it. Lutheran might tell them they're, they're kind of being like um, Israel and Babylon. We're just going to hunker down. We're, we're pilgrims in this land. We're waiting to go home and not having a lot of influence. So Lutherans would be critical of this. They say, no, we ought to be out in the culture um, and pushing for Lutheran hospitals and Lutheran schools um, and yet being very careful of the gospel. So you can kind of see it all, it all kind of gets a little convoluted. So it does drive questions like, is there a place for Christian schools? Is there a place for Christian hospitals? Does that make sense? Or should we just have the best practical, general world wisdom type of expertise in these fields, right? We'll have Christians there and Hindus there, but we want the best hospitals, right? We want the best doctor. We don't care about it, some Christian ethos. And others would say, no, we, we need to protect that Christian ethos. And so I kind of went up over questions. Um, one type of question we could ask is, did our, refor- did our reformed forefathers get it wrong? Did they, I mean, they got it big time wrong if they got it wrong, right? We've pretty much done a 180 out on that chapter. Um, or do we just accept the fact that, you know, if, I would love those who come in our church from Pakistan or India. It would be very interesting to talk about how do they think about these things? How, as the gospel goes into a new culture, are you really hoping to make a more of a Western society? Or it's just going to look a totally different way in different cultures? Um, how much do you measure a Christian's faith in your voting decisions on the, the policies you support? And probably the biggest question I have, the most one I'm interested in is, as, as our church pursues a city-facing ministry, the discussion in this session right now, what, what, what types of things ought we to get involved in? There's practical issues. I just want to say theologically. Should we keep it at the level of feeding the poor, helping you know, the drug addicted? Or should we work at transforming something of city laws or housing for the homeless? I know Guy is involved in. Is that something our church should take on? Or... Or or are we just free to do whatever? So I'll just kind of open it up. What, anything in this realm you want to talk about? Where where do you fall on the church and state? Where do you turn biblically to do so? Uh, What are your hopes or concerns about our church discussing going into the city in in some way? Let me just open it up. Do we have a microphone? (laughs) We're getting it there. Or did I thoroughly confuse you? Don't worry about the history so much. I'm a little concerned that some of you were probably able to quote the Constitution better than you can the Bible. Okay, uh, you I got You seem more passionate by it. That's probably my biggest concern. Go ahead. I wasn't saying that about Mark. <laughs> the, uh, I don't know if my comment really is relatable, but I see a distinction between outreach and evangelism. And so in outreach, we should be loving our neighbor in all those ways you decided or talked about, you know, uh, feeding the poor and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But as far as evangelism goes, um, is, I mean, that's what we do here. 
we outreach to bring them in. So, um, would you say that outreach would be organizationally? I think it should. Or, be. or just individual. Okay. So yeah, you support. I think. I think it to the extent. You know, people and money are available. We should certainly strive for that. I, I'm. Okay. So you. So. You do want the organized church to be out doing outreach, not just evangelism, discipleship, and actually as a as a way of getting them here to then hear the gospel. Well, it's, it's outreach has no uh, quid pro quo in mind. It's like I'm just going to love you, you know, kind of like the way they set up all these hospitals in New York, and you're showing Christ's love. Right, so you, you would not make it a, a prerequisite to hear the gospel to then receive some kind of mercy. And that's, exactly. that's a big discussion in ministries. Well, exactly. No, I don't. Right. Okay. That's all I got. Anyone else? I'm going to jump on a different uh, thing that you commented on about uh, Adam and Eve's status in the garden pre-fall. So... Uh, the mandates to work, things under the cultural mandate, marriage, female, and male design. If you believe those are no longer applicable, uh, so this is the area, the speaking job I do, we have a whole uh, detailed uh, exegesis of that section of scripture. And so the if you don't believe that God reinstituted those things after the fall in, by doing that in Genesis 3, then we have no, I don't know, uh, rationale for even fighting for marriage mm, or point. feminism all, or work, dignity of work. So I would heartily disagree with the statement that some people think those are no longer relevant. That's a great point. Uh, I think in Genesis, there's, there's great detail to say God reinstituted all those things. And that, that was how world is perfect. That's why we will have work in heaven. Yeah, that's a great point. Who else? I hope you think about these things. Good. No one else is going to talk. To some degree, and this may just be my naiveness, in a way, a lot of these are distinctions without a difference. I don't, I mean, quite honestly, I'm not going to make a big deal out of Mike Horton's Two Kingdom Theology because... I don't, it's a lot of words. I think most Christians kind of operate on the same frequency, you know, and some people are, you know, Kuyperian, some people, you know, this radical two kingdom theology, but I don't, to me it just doesn't resonate. Maybe I'm just not theologically sophisticated enough. I mean, it is complex, and probably wherever you stand is going to be nuanced. I think we probably always want to avoid the extremes, right? We don't want to be some separatists. 
Um, avoiding the world. How, how is your light going to shine in the darkness if you do that? Um, and we don't, shouldn't be thinking of this world as evil, right? That it's, it's a world that's marred by sin, but it, it still reflects in some blemish sense the image of God. And so it's, it's more about trying to decipher what, what is truly the image of God and what's been marred. Um, I can see lots of the different views of and we obviously want to keep the law gospel distinction. That's very important. You know, it, to me, it's probably a matter of priorities more than anything. And that might be different for each church based on their gifts, their size. Um, but it doesn't seem to me to go to one extreme or the other is, is a good thing. It's my own read. Tim, did you have your hand up? <laughs> He's coming. The uh, idea of redemption, redemption of what? Redemption of creation. And so there's redemption already and redemption not yet. So the Christ, the transformer of culture, we shouldn't be too optimistic about it or too pessimistic about it. Um, and so what I, I see in some views is rather than wrestle with that, uh, just basically mark off this territory is this is why we're here, this is what we do, it's messier to be a, a transformationist. Uh, in my seminary education, that was the emphatic view was Christ was the transformer. And I can see some of the uh, critique of it being valid. But on the other hand, the points Terry made are also very valid that you, you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I wrote a, a paper in seminary that got uh, published in, in a magazine on the cultural mandate and the uh, Great Commission in reality being similar. Hmm. The same thing. Uh, it's one is the fulfillment of the other, but that includes all of the fallen world because it is uh, groaning, uh, Paul tells us in Romans. And so we, the church does have a responsibility uh, toward creation. But the nuances of this other stuff could drive you to drink. <laughs> the theonomist, I think I mentioned it, but the theonomist would say, see, the Great Commission is to teach everyone all things that I've to told you, right? We don't just stop at the gospel. They'd say all things. And so for them, that means the civil laws, right? And so they say, see, the Great Commission would be all these things in affecting culture. Now, the danger of a, of a one kingdom view is you get so involved in social work, you forget the gospel, right? And you forget the distinctions between those who were deemed and those who were not. So that's a danger. That doesn't mean to say it's wrong, it's just a danger. Right? It's, a, it's a matter of focus and priority. Yes, uh, microphone. This will be our last comment. Thank you. I've been on a steep learning curve for quite some years, actually decades, but I think it was Piper said that Missions exist because worship doesn't. If you're looking for, um, I think you need to back up the bus if you're thinking about what the church can do in Las Vegas. Uh, stick to the basics. Uh, uh, the Great Commission is, you know, the foundation of what the church is supposed to be doing. But even before Jesus said, you know, I have all the authority and I'm giving it to you, some of the um, 11 uh, worshiped him and some doubted. So, I mean, even from the very beginning, there was um, an issue with how are we going to go forward with uh, 
preaching the gospel. Sure, and of course in the New Testament, you know, having a, having a theocracy in Israel, there was a lot of questions on, does this mean you're gonna, you know, you're gonna sit on the King of David and establish a new kingdom here? Um, it, they didn't quite get the newness yet and the mystery of the, of the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, I hope I've sparked some interest. It doesn't look like it, looking at you, but um, I, these are big things. I, don't just assume things. Always, always challenge yourself and, and have a biblical basis for, for your positions. Um, I, I found it, it's fascinating reading all these gifted and godly people who have such different views. <laughs> it's amazing. And obviously at some point you, as an individual, are going to make a decision on what priority of your life does certain things in the world. And then kind of maybe the conscience of our church is the session. The elders have the same thing and they probably have their own disagreements. So feel free to talk to them about what you hope to see and, and do. And of course, be ready to jump on board if you're going to do that. Um, but that's something our church is going to be thinking through in the coming months and years of, of some kind of city-facing ministry. And so we want to do that in unity. We want to do that to love our neighbor and, and ultimately for the sake of the gospel. So I hope you're praying to that end. Let's not give up on that vision and that hope. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your word. Um, we even thank you for the complexities of your word. Uh, help us to, to, to be motivated to, to dive deeper and deeper into these things. Help us to love our neighbor. Father, we would ask that you would show us, particularly in our own circumstances, our own families, um, how we might love a neighbor better. Help us not to live in some Christian subculture and run from our Christian families to our Christian church and maybe even Christian schools and we just are passing by all these unbelievers on the way. Help us to know what it means to uh, let your light so shine before others. Give us wisdom in, in how politically active to be, how socially active to be. Give us great grace in uh, seeing how others make their decisions. Help these types of disagreements not produce disunity in the body. Pray that you would give the elders great wisdom as they consider these things as well for Spring Meadows. Um, not only to be theologically right, but also wisdom in the practical and in the, in the priority and to not feel overwhelmed. Um, help us to never lose the gospel. Um, help us to hold these things, maybe even in tension. Help us to not grow weary of doing good. Uh, until Jesus comes back, until we are inter glory, may we see ourselves as pilgrims on this earth, but not just waiting for it to burn and go away, but um, truly here to be light to others. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.